0: see, but we're turning, uh, even though that season upon us, and we're thinking about the most immediate things, and do you have enough notebooks, and do you have enough pencils, and do you have whatever you need for school, we're trying as a church to take a global perspective of things that are going on all throughout the world, believing that God really does love the world, and he cares about everything that's going on, and not just any one corner of the planet or any just one detail in our lives, but he is able to focus on all of it. And so we kind of want to lift our eyes in this month in particular and ask, what is God doing not just here, but everywhere? So we're going to read verses 10 through 20 of Genesis chapter 12 with the focus of what God desires to do throughout the world. It reads, Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, and they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys and servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave me orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And that's where we'll conclude for today. We've entitled this message, Challenges, and failures, hopefully it's pretty evident just in the short reading that that is what this passage is filled with, <laughs> challenges and failures. It was last week that Abram was called to, to go from his family and his kindred and his country to a land that God would show him. And we said long before uh, Jesus gave the command to all of his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into all the world, making disciples of the nations, there was this first command to Abram to go from his family and his kindred to a place that God would show him, and that from the beginning, God's intention was to bless the nations of the world, but that God is on the move. He is doing something, and so we're either going with him or we're not, but staying still is often not an indication of obedience. It's more a matter of disobedience, but he is doing something. He is a God who is active in this world, accomplishing things every single day, and we're either a part of that and available to him in that, or we're not. Whatever that means geographically for us, and, and whether we physically move or not, it's just that statement all throughout scripture that God is on the move. And to obey him, as Jesus said, is to follow him, <laughs> to go where he is going. But he is doing something. There is somewhere for and someone for us to follow. And so Abram was called the, the father of our faith, called to go from his home, his kindred, everything that represented safety and security for him to a brand new place. And last week, what we saw is that when he got there, he noticed that it was filled with Canaanites. It was occupied land. And what we hear in the first verse of this week is that there was also a famine in the land, and not just any famine, but a severe famine. So this is a challenge. There is a severe famine in the land, and it is occupied by a foreign power. So one of the first things that would be settling in Abram's mind is that as God has called him to this new venture, he's not calling him away from trouble, but rather into trouble. He is calling him into the challenges, not away from them. He's not asking him to relocate because he has some retirement, uh, that, you know, a place for his retirement that he might fit in real well where he can rest and relax. He is already 75 years old. He'd probably gladly retire at this point, but God is calling him into difficulty, into challenges, into the messiness of the world and not into a retreat from all of those things. Just like we think of people who are set aside to be paramedics in our city or emergency doctors or firemen when they get the call to go they know they're specifically being called because something is wrong and they are being called to go into the mess they are being called to go into the trouble into the danger not to run from it i mean just imagine if you were calling a dispatcher when you were going through an emergency and that on the other line someone would say Oh, well, that, that doesn't sound safe. I don't think we're going to send anyone there. Well, wait, wait a minute. I'm calling you because it's not safe. I'm calling you because you have identified yourself as a man or a woman who would come into these situations because when those situations develop and arise, none of us can handle them on our own. And so we need brave men and women who are willing to make sacrifices in order to go into dangerous places, into messy situations, and to do God's work. Abram doesn't know how this is all going to play out, but it it doesn't take long before this begins to settle in. Wow, there's a bunch of people here that don't know me, that don't know my God, that aren't just going to give me a high five and say, we're so glad you relocated to our neighborhood. And then there's a severe famine, which is a huge challenge because Abram isn't just moving he and his wife, he's bringing his whole enterprise with them. He's, a, in the ancient time, a very wealthy business owner, and he has lots of cattle, he has lots of resources. So it's not just that he needs food, but for, his, for for everyone that is with him, he needs there to be fertile ground, otherwise, eventually, his wealth will soon disappear. But he looks out at that, and he realizes he is going into danger. There are challenges ahead. There is a severe famine. And so what he does is he makes a choice in verse 11, or in verse 10, that he's just going to continue on. He's seen the land, he's seen the challenge, and he's going to move on to Egypt. One of the things that that shows us, though, is that the land he is being called to has strategic significance. It's an important part of real estate. It is a travel route for the Largest nations in the world, that if they're going to get from the north of Africa into Europe or into Asia, this is land that they're going to have to go through. So also, as God is calling him to this place, it is a place where he now has the opportunity to interact with people from all over the world. He's not called to a place that's sort of an island where no one can get access to him. And so, as we just even talked about in the relation to membership, that none of us are called to live sort of the solitary experience of the Christian life. God has designed us for relationship with other people. And as God has called Abram into this, he has specifically chosen him and selected him from all of the people, but he has chosen him and selected him to be a blessing to all the people so that we don't look at it and say, well, why did you choose Abram and not someone else? We'll never answer that question. We don't know for sure why Abram and not anyone else in the ancient world. But what we do know is that part of choosing Abram was so that through him, all the nations of the earth could be blessed. All the families of the earth could be blessed. And here he is in the land of Canaan. If he stays there in a place where a lot of people are gonna pass through. And so by being there, he can have connections to the north, the east, and the south. And so God wants him there for a reason. But he doesn't stay there. He moves on. He sees the challenges that are there. There is strategic significance to this land. But the next thing we read about is a spectacular failure. There's just no other way to put it. It is a spectacular failure on his part. He, we don't know how long it took for him to make a decision about whether to stay in Canaan or to move south to Egypt. But he makes the move. And in so doing part of what he had to conclude was that it wasn't, it wasn't going to be good for him to stay, and now he's going to Egypt, and he comes to another conclusion, that his own life is going to be in danger. That if they look at his wife and see her, and they realize that their husband and wife, that that will put him at risk. So he comes up with an idea that he's going to deceive the Egyptians and say, this isn't my wife, this is in fact my sister. And then the story unfolds that they take him at his word and they think she's not married to anyone and so the princes say to Pharaoh, hey, you need to meet this lady and so she's brought into the house and Abram gets a lot of advantages because of that and his life is not taken. But then we read that in verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And we just would pause for a moment and say, why is this story in here? <laughs> this does not make Abram look good. Here he is, he's called by God to do something significant and one of the very first things we read about him is a spectacular failure on his part that for most of us would say, I'm not really sure you're qualified to do the things that it is that God wants to do through you. And this is for a lot of people who only do a cursory reading of the Bible that they'll raise these questions and say, don't you know that a lot of those people in there did some pretty bad things? Have I mean, you ever read some of the stories about how they treat each other? Well, in part, it's here because it, it does need to be here. It's not just a random detail, but yes, Abram is called to a unique purpose, but we all need to be clear that Abram is a sinner. He is not a perfect saint. He is not the most qualified to do exactly what it is that God would have him to do. He's a human being who has his own struggles, has his own insecurities, has his limited ideas of what's right to do, and sometimes even when he has good intentions, he ends up making a mess of things. He has a good intention, right? At least that's how it unfolds. I want to save my life and your life. So this is how I think is maybe the best way to save your life or my life. This is like... Last Sunday morning, someone in my house, very young, had a really good intention in his mind and took a glass cup off of the counter and wanted to pass the glass cup off to my wife and so wanted to be helpful and then got all the way toward us and then dropped the glass and it shattered. And there we are. I'm still barefoot. Amy's barefoot. Levi's barefoot. And there's just shattered glass everywhere. I mean, he had really good intentions. Like, I, I want to be helpful. I'm, I'm trying to see how big I am now. But it created something that we looked at and said, this all just got worse. <laughs> had you not been trying to be helpful, we'd be better off than if you were trying to be helpful right now. And that happens in our lives a lot. Abram has good intentions, but he lies about something and he puts his wife at risk. He puts himself at risk. And he causes the very thing that he's been set aside not to do. He was set aside to be a blessing to the nations. And plagues are specifically inflicted on Pharaoh because of Abram's actions. And so rather than being a blessing to the Egyptians, he's a curse to the Egyptians. Pharaoh says, why did you lie to me? Why, why did you bring this kind of... Sin into my house because of what you did. Because this story is in the Bible so early, there are several sections in the Bible later where another author talks about the life of Abram and talks about things he did and acts of obedience, and even Sarah and acts of obedience and things that she did. And not one of them later refers to this experience as an exemplary experience. In other words, They all know that what was done here was wrong. But the good news in this is that it does bring home to us that while God is working out his plan and his purpose in the world and he's sending out people to do things, God is willing to use people who make mistakes. God is willing to use people who make spectacular failures. Because if you're sitting here and saying, I'd love to be a part of what God is doing in the world, but I mean, I struggle with this, I struggle with that. I, plenty of times I do bad things. Even when I have good intentions, I seem to make some things more complicated. Then you would walk away and say, well, well then God can't use me because he can only use really, really qualified, amazing, and successful people like Abram. Except if you read more than just the first nine verses and you continue down to what we've read, you've realized, wait a minute. I mean, he, he did achieve a certain amount of success. He had good stature in life, but that by no means meant he was perfect. And what it drives home for us is that we don't need to be perfect as well. And that's the quote in the back of your handout, that God always uses imperfect people in imperfect situations to accomplish his will. But if you say, but wait a minute, I don't don't understand that. I thought the whole point of the Bible was trying to decide who good people are and who bad people are and how God uses good people to do his things. Well, if you just read any of the Old Testament narratives, you can't draw that conclusion because the the biblical authors are totally honest about the good and the bad of their ancestors. They don't lie about them. This is the kind of detail that if there was a PR firm in Israel, they would say, make sure this story never goes public. We don't want anyone to know about this story because we want everyone to have a really good image of who Abram is. But they obviously don't feel that pressure. They're willing to record the good and the bad. They're willing to be honest, unlike Abram's willingness to be honest when he went down into Egypt. And it is because of all the people God uses throughout the Bible and all the things he does through them, he has only really sent us one hero and one savior. And his name is Jesus. He's the only person that when we open up our Bibles and we read them and we examine the totality of his life from birth to death, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and examine it and we say, all right, so when did he make a spectacular failure? The answer is not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in Luke, not in John. Not when he was a kid, not when he was an adolescent, not when he was an adult. He's the only one of every person we read about in all of scripture that we do not find these kind of stories about. He's the only hero. He's the only savior. He's the only one ultimately that we look up to and claim salvation. So God is gonna use Abram to do a lot of great things, but he wants Abram to be rescued from thinking that he's the Messiah or he's the savior of the world. Abram is not the solution to the world's problems. And he needs to know that. He's accomplished. He's been successful. He's done a lot of things. And God is going to do even more things through him. But to actually be used effectively in the kingdom of God, one of the things that needs to be driven home in him is that he is a failure. That he's not qualified to be used by God. Because some of the hardest people to deal with in this world, would you agree, are the people that can never admit that they make mistakes. Some of the most difficult people to deal with. And when you combine that with religious zeal and an inability to criticize themselves, you just have a cocktail for a horrible relationship. That they're so persuaded that they're doing God's will and they never see their sin. They never see their struggle. They're so good about pointing it out to you or to me, but they're completely oblivious to their own things. Whereas the person who's really been broken and knows that they're a sinner, knows that they're a failure, is someone who is much, much more compassionate. I was listening to a program on NPR yesterday about parenting, and the one comment, it was great, I can't quote it verbatim because there was not all appropriate language, but the one person said, don't you ever feel like part of just what God is teaching you as a parent is how much of a jerk you were before you were a parent? And they laughed, and they said, yeah. Because they just talked about how they, they both had all these opinions about other people's kids in other situations, and how they had no patience in a grocery store line for this kind of person or that kind of person until they had a child that struggled with some of those same things. And they realized that the one mother was reflecting because she confessed that in most of her early adult life she would have been so mean to people and that now she had a daughter that was very hard for her to parent and she realized how many times that she had an option in her early adult life where it really only would have taken 15 seconds more of being a basic human being that she could have shown compassion to the lady in front of her in line. And instead, she was the one that rolled her eyes and went down the next line. And now she's the one stuck in the line in a situation she can't control. And she was acknowledging that. And it's true that God uses our weaknesses, our failures, our struggles. For Abram, it's something like this. For Moses, he was a fugitive on the run before God called him into ministry. For Peter, before he was given the command to go and to plant churches in Jesus' name throughout all the regions, Peter knew he was the denier of his Savior. He fled in the most critical moments of his Savior's life, and he failed spectacularly. For Paul, the most effective evangelist of the New Testament, he never forgot that he was a persecutor of the church, that he was a failure, that he had no earned credit to do what he was doing. And so part of what made him so effective as he then went to meet all kinds of people was that he never came to them and said, let me tell you how I'm better than you and if you're just more like me, you'll be better off. But that he could come to them and say, let me tell you about who I used to be and how great God is and how he changed me and made me different than what I was even on my best day and God can do that for you. That you don't have to deny or or, or ignore the failures in your life. But for any of us who basically think that the way of salvation is by earning it through our good works, we're never able to be as honest as the text is about our own failures. If we think that we have to be good enough to get God's favor, we have to do enough of the right things for God to use us, then we'll just lie. And we will have a PR firm that tries to hide all of our warts and all of our bad things. And so part of what we learn in this story, even as we pause for a moment on this detail, in this narrative in Egypt, is that yes, while there's spectacular failure on the part of Abram, there is a sovereign God. And his plan is not ultimately thwarted by the actions of his children that he's a big enough God that he knows what he's doing and gives us flexibility and freedom in our actions that we don't just function like robots, we're allowed to make choices, we're allowed to see the famine and make decisions, we're allowed to look at the potential danger and he he gives us room to be human beings but all along the way he never gives to us ultimately the responsibility of accomplishing his perfect will. He never gives to us the responsibility of saving the world. We're always vessels of his, and whether it's a good day or a bad day for us, we're able to point back to him as the only one that people should actually put their trust in and their confidence in, that he is the one who can work all things together for good. Now, neither Abram nor Moses nor Peter nor Paul ever used their failures to then be an excuse to go on doing the same things. They learn from their mistakes. They grow in maturity. That's part of what the body of believers helps each other to do. But one of the things that we're also supposed to do as a body of believers is to always help us never forget who we once were apart from Christ. The gospel is not about how God makes good people better. It's about how dead men and women become alive. The gospel is not about how good people, if they just work a little more, become better. The gospel is about how a sovereign God makes dead men and women alive. He gives them new life, and in the newness of life, he then gives them what they need to grow and mature that life in the same way that our lives develop in the physical sense. And he is sovereign over all of that. And so when we consider global missions and the call to go, do we expect perfection from the people that we send? Do we expect that they have no failures, they have no struggles? Or do we actually desire and look for people who know specifically their limitations, who are honest about their weaknesses and their failures, but who don't use that in any way as an excuse to not do what God would have them to do because they're persuaded that God is desiring to use them. It doesn't make sense. He could use someone smarter than me. He could use someone better than me. Just in a comparative sense, clearly there are a lot people, a lot more people that have more gifts. But if I am persuaded that he desires to use me, who am I to disagree with the sovereign God and the ways that he chooses and the means that he uses to accomplish his will? And so this is the task for us as his followers. To look back on our own stories and consider how much of our effort do we still spend trying to look like we're good enough or great enough to be used by him or have we found the liberating freedom to not lie in any way about ourselves, to not present anything untrue about ourselves but just to trust completely in the sovereign goodness of our God let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your Word, we thank you for how you use us, your servants, so weak, so frail, so limited, prone to make bad situations even out of good intentions, and when we see all that needs to be done in this world, we we do marvel that you would desire to use us. But we thank you. We thank you that you love us enough to, to not look upon our weaknesses and to look upon our brokenness and our struggles and to just desire to do away with us. But that you are the God who grants new life, who sends your spirit to give us gifts and abilities to do things that we otherwise cannot do on our own. Father, I pray that we would all have a a humility about us that if our lives were recorded in detail like some of the saints of old, there'd be plenty of chapters that would be embarrassing about us. And Father, when we feel that sense of guilt or shame that we wouldn't run from you, but that we would run to you because of that. And that we would ask you to wash us of all of our sin, to cleanse us of our guilt, to free us from the burden of past regret and to be amazed that you love us anyway, that you desire to use us in spite of ourselves. And so we give you all the praise now that is due your name for the great God that you are. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.